So keep your Bibles open to Colossians 1 as we continue uh, our series on uh, the book of Colossians, a great book. Colossians reminds us that Jesus Christ is sufficient to meet all of our needs. Hope, love, and faith flow out of trusting Jesus Christ plus nothing else. In Christ, as we learned last week, there is power to endure any difficult circumstance and to be patient with any difficult person. And like the Colossians, like these Colossian believers, we are all prone to add on to Jesus Christ. I expect a number of us uh, live this way. We, we say to ourselves, I can be content in Jesus as long as my career flourishes. I can have peace in Jesus if everyone in my life I am in perfect harmony and fellowship with. I can have hope in Jesus if my preferred political candidates or party is in power. I can have joy in Jesus if Jesus brings me a, a, a romantic interest, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse. I can rest secure in Jesus if my financial goals are being reached. And on and on and on it goes. For honest, the biggest struggle that any human being has, and even believers in Jesus Christ have, is that something other than Jesus is part of where our hope is, part of where our joy is, part of where our contentment is, part of where our peace is, part of our security is based on something other than Jesus Christ. And what Paul is concerned with in this book to show us that if we have Jesus Christ, if we put our confidence and hope in Christ plus nothing else, we have everything we need in this life and for the life to come. And if Jesus Christ is more consistently our functional sufficiency, hope, love, and peace, and joy, and contentment, all of these things will be ours because we're trying to find them all functionally in Jesus Christ plus nothing else. So in Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 20, we're going to see, it's an amazing passage, and I just have to tell you, this is such an amazing passage, almost every commentator I read says, I can't do justice to this passage, it's so amazing. It's gonna be the case today. Prepare yourself for some level of disappointment. It's that amazing. But in this text, I believe what we, we're going to get two <coughs> very amazing pictures of who Jesus Christ is. And we need to see those pictures. We need to understand those pictures. We need to, uh, to, to orient our life around those two pictures of Jesus Christ. And then I want to draw out a couple of very, very important applications. If we get these two pictures more clearly uh, in our minds and our hearts. So let's look at the first picture. And the first picture, it's, it's very clear what Paul is driving at. He says it so beautifully and so well. And that is, in the first picture, Jesus Christ is sovereign over creation. Notice how Paul describes Jesus in verse 15. He says, he is the image of 
of the invisible God. Now, when you see that, that phrase, image, you, you might say, oh, he's just an image, so he's not quite God. No, no, it, it means he is God. The word image is, is, is referring to the, the idea that Jesus Christ is the exact likeness of God. That's repeated in Hebrews and in other places in the New Testament. He's in the, like, in the exact likeness of God, Jesus Christ. He's a mirror image of God because he is God himself. The image, the image terminology also connotes that Jesus Christ represents God to us. And the fact that he can do that is he is God himself. The word image also refers to the fact that in Jesus, the full manifestation, the full revelation of who God is, is manifested in Jesus precisely because he is God himself. Paul goes on in describing this uh, picture that Jesus Christ is sovereign over creation. At the end of verse 15, he says, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I suspect some of you say that, wait a minute, he's the firstborn of creation. Does that mean that Jesus Christ was the first created being in God's creation? Well, absolutely not. That's not what it says. It's very clear from the rest of the text. But it's also clear even in the word firstborn. Firstborn can mean that, can refer to someone's rank, to, to his position, not necessarily his temporal relationship to the issue at hand. And of course, we know from, uh, from the scriptures that oftentimes the firstborn son of a father would inherit the entire inheritance and in fact would be viewed as equal with the father. This is not saying that Jesus Christ was the first created being. It's saying that he was, was first in supremacy and rank of the creation, not that he was created. And of course, this becomes more clear as Paul describes this. In verse 16, notice, he says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created. So Jesus couldn't be the first created thing because Paul goes on to say he for by Jesus Christ, all things were created. And notice the comprehensiveness that Paul points here. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authority, all things were created through him and for him. Paul is describing that there is nothing in this world that wasn't made by Jesus Christ himself. And when he talks about invisible, invisible, he's talking about the, the, the angelic beings, the supernatural beings that we can't see but we know from Scripture are active. And then he talks about the thrones and, and authorities and the powers. Everything, the visible, the invisible, the supernatural creatures, the world itself, things in heaven, things on earth, all of it was made through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, he goes on at the very last phrase, in verse 16, all of these dominions and rulers and authorities, these spiritual, supernatural beings, angelic beings, but everything that we see were created through him, but also were created for him. Think about that. It's not simply that Jesus made everything. He did do it. And it's not simply that through him he made all things. The whole creation 
And the whole purpose of creation is subsumed in Jesus Christ himself. Verse 17, he goes on. And he is before all things. Well, see, again, obviously the firstborn can't mean that he was the first created being because he is before all things. He existed he, before the creation of the world. He had no beginning. And then it goes on to say, and in him all things hold together, the end of verse 17. Not only did he create the world, not only was it created through him, not only is the purpose of creation subsumed in his person, Jesus Christ, but the very universe holds together today because of him. In him, all things hold together. And what we see here in this text which makes Christianity unique among religions, is that Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity, is not simply a great teacher who founded Christianity. He's not simply a great miracle worker. He was that. He's the creator of the universe. Everything was made by him. We were made by him. We were made through him. And actually, we were made, and the universe was made for him. And in fact, the whole world is held together by him. He is the exact representation of God because he is God. He's the creator. Our purpose, the creation of this world, is found in him. The world holds together by him. And this makes... Jesus Christ and his claims far different than any other leader of any other religion. He is God himself. He is sovereign over creation. And to be honest, I, I know I, I read some uh, sermons for, from preachers and I couldn't read them all. They, they, they spent two years in the book of Colossians. We're going to spend three months. There's so much here. I want to encourage you to reread Colossians 1, 15 to 20. In fact, every passage that we preach on in Colossians, I encourage you to read it throughout the next week. There is so much here. Drink it in. Believe it. May it begin to change you. But that's, again, that's the first picture. But there's a second, and, and, and even, it's hard to even say this, an even more amazing picture, the second picture that I think Paul gives in this text, and that is this. Jesus Christ is sovereign over the new creation. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, talking about Jesus Christ, the church, he is the beginning. So Paul is shifting gears from showing that Jesus Christ is Lord of the creation. And he's now talking about the new creation. 
I think Paul is assuming here that we all understand that the creation was beautiful. It was good when it was first made. But we and everyone else in the world have, have marred this great creation, have, have damaged it through our sin and rebellion. But now what Paul is going to be talking about is how is Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, how is he be going to restore and, and, and to fix and, to, and to, to reconcile the world that is in rebellion against him largely and bring it back under his authority and bring it back to the place where it is functioning the way it was originally designed to do. And what's fascinating here is that Paul begins this new picture by saying that Jesus Christ is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Paul is reminding us that Jesus Christ was the beginning of the church. He started the church. It was his idea. He's the one who founded it. He's the one who was sovereign over it. He's head of the church, meaning not only the source of uh, the church is from him, but also he exerts authority over that church. And what's fascinating about this is, is, is that what Paul is saying is we, as part of his church, are ground zero of his efforts to bring the new creation to existence, to bring the creation back under the lordship. And the primary initial way that he begins to do that is in here, through us. When you think about that. I mean, look around at the people you're sitting next to in the pew and think to yourself, God's plan to bring the new creation is dependent and is, is going to happen through us. Now, some of you might cause you to doubt God's wisdom. That's the plan? That's the plan. This place here, I know you come to church and some of you feel, you know, you guilt. You feel like you have to come and you have to come to church. And some of you, you know, may come and, well, this is what we do. This is not just a place to be or a place to come or to do some religious exercise. This is ground zero here at Stonehill where the local, a local body of believers is ground zero for Jesus Christ bringing his creation that we have marred and everything everyone else who's lived on the planet has marred, back under his authority to, to build his new creation back, and he's graciously brought us to himself, but now he is asking us to be part of his great plan to bring that new creation to fruition, not only now, but eventually in the future when he returns again. Well, he goes on, and this is really uh, sort of a massive whiplash. He's the beginning. Then he goes on, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything he might be preeminent. Wait a minute. Jesus Christ is Lord of the creation. He created everything. Everything is for him and through him. And the purpose of creation is in him. He's head of the church. But what? Now this God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, is going to die? He's the firstborn from the dead? Again, just like the firstborn of creation, it doesn't mean that Jesus was the first person to be resurrected, but his supremacy as the Lord of the universe in his death and resurrection, his resurrection defeated death completely, uh, comprehensively. 
And so his, he, he can be called the firstborn from the dead because his death and resurrection is the basis for the new creation to be realized here on the earth now and certainly when he returns. But this is also what makes Christianity so unique. The founder of it is not simply a good teacher and a miracle worker and, you know, a good person. He's the Lord of the universe, but it's also, you don't have a lot of religions where the founder is God himself, but he comes in a human body and then he dies. A God who dies. You are reading something extremely unique. It, it's, it's not, in, in, in the normal understanding of most religions, this is not anything like it. Jesus Christ is unique. He's, he's preeminent. He died. And his death is what brings in the new creation. By taking our sin upon himself, offering his righteousness, when we believe in that, we are now put back into a right, right relationship with God which is the beginning of him bringing us into this new creation, not only now, but ultimately when he returns. But this new creation that he wants to bring together is not just for us to get into right relationship with God. It has to do with the whole universe. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, you're not going to get a more uh, classic passage that, that clearly describes that Jesus Christ was not simply a good man. He was much more. The fullness of God, the fullness, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwelt in Jesus. And, 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 and God himself was pleased to dwell in Jesus because he was fully God. And then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What Paul is describing in the second, this second picture of what, who Jesus is, is that Jesus Christ is sovereign. He's Lord over this new creation that, he, that, that can happen because he died in our place. He took sin upon himself, and through him, he reconciles those of us who know Christ as our Savior to himself. But this death and resurrection, this making peace by the blood of the cross, makes it possible for the entire universe to be re-reconciled back into right relationship with God. Speaking of people, but also the physical universe. What Jesus did in his death and resurrection was not simply to make you, you right with God. That certainly was part of it. There's a cosmic dimension to this, where this Jesus, who's Lord of the new creation, is in the process of bringing all of the things that are not right in the world back under his authority, making peace. In other words, providing for the, the fullness, the shalom, this, 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 this peace of God, where the, the well-being of every aspect of the universe is remade in this new creation that he's accomplishing now, and when he returns again, he will fully enact that new creation, and we will live in it, those of us who know Christ, forever in that new creation, fully reconciled to God in every aspect of the universe, reconciled to God because of the peace that was established by the blood of the cross in Jesus Christ. Now that is astounding. 
please know, we, 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 and this has been true from the history of, of this church, right? What has been preached from this pulpit from the very beginning is this. We're, we're not just trying to come together and, and, and sort of morally do a little better. We're not just doing it here because it's the religious thing to do. We're not just doing this because, you know, it's kind of a good to have a, a community of faith somewhere. What we are involved in is none other than God and being part of God's plan to remake the entire world. And he's by grace has chosen us by grace to enter into that ourselves, but that together we would exhibit the beauty of this new creation, share the message of that new creation that's only through Jesus, and to see the world changed even now, and then ultimately one day it will be completely done. We are we are part of the most incredible task, the most incredible journey that we are on with Jesus. It's frankly astounding. It's frankly humbling. It's frankly hard to believe that God would choose us to be part of his effort to renew the creation of the world and it would be ground zero would happen in this place among us, weak as we are. This is humbling. I think it gives us a, a deeper picture of who Jesus is and what he's trying to do. And we need to believe these pictures. We need to immerse ourselves in these pictures. We need to think about these pictures, study these pictures, because it helps us and informs us of how we are to live, particularly here among us as, as ground zero of God's task, Jesus Christ's task of bringing in his new creation through us. So let me, let me end briefly with two ways that these two pictures should motivate us to take action. Here's the first way. If you look at the end of verse 18, you see the phrase that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, if Jesus Christ is truly sovereign over creation, and if he is sovereign over the new creation, and you have by faith in Jesus Christ trusted him alone, so now you're part of, God's, of Christ's plan to bring in the new creation. And if this is who Jesus actually is, and I believe he is, then in everything, he, Jesus Christ, should be preeminent. In other words, if Jesus Christ is sovereign over creation, as if he's sovereign over the new creation, and you're part of that effort as God's people because you're part of the church of which he is the head and the beginning, then there's not anything that Jesus... There's not anything that Jesus can't ask you to do. And you should say, not my will, but yours. The problem we have, I think, is that because we lose sight of the fact that he's Lord over creation, and we lose sight of the fact that he's Lord of the new creation, it's amazing how many people who would claim to be Bible-believing Christians are not always keen to make Jesus Christ preeminent in everything. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I've talked to many people 
and, 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 I, and please don't think that I'm acting like I've heard these church people and they don't want to obey God. I look in the mirror and see the same kind of person sometimes. I can't tell you how many times I have been with people who've had serious, serious harm and hurt has been done to them. Okay, I, I don't want to minimize that at all. But I'm talking to them about the new creation. I'm talking to them about God, Jesus Christ, wants to reconcile all things. He wants all relationships to be reconciled. And that we are to, as God's people, part of his new creation, we should be doing everything, as far as it depends on us, to have reconciliation with others. And yet people will tell me, Bible-believing Christians, I have no doubt that they're believers, will say, I know that Jesus says I need to forgive this person, but I just can't. And, and, and because of what this person did to me, I think I don't really have to forgive because I don't think this is what forgiveness means and I don't think it applies to me. Certainly understandable given the trauma these folks have faced. But that's not having everything preeminent. I think we would all say in the Bible that we're all supposed to honor our authorities, which means our bosses our church leaders, our political leaders, our mayor, our senators, our president, the vice president. I think most Christians would say, yeah, I'm supposed to honor them. And of course, in our country, thankfully, you can disagree with people. You can write letters. You can protest. You can do all kinds of stuff. We have more freedom than in most places. But how many times have all of us in various ways, dishonored our bosses, dishonored uh, the, the, the political governmental leaders locally or nationally, disregarded their authority, spoke of them in ways that are dishonoring. And in everything, he might be preeminent. Oh, I've seen this with the teaching of... Uh, that God's teaching on, you know, intimacy is supposed to be reserved for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. I can't tell you how many people have looked at me and said, that's stupid. Why should I do that? No one of my other friends are doing it. Sometimes they even say, oh, there's other people in the church. They're not, they're not following that, so why should I do that? But Jesus Christ is Lord of creation. If Jesus Christ is Lord of the new creation, how do we set aside whatever commands in the Bible we don't find convenient? It's an amazing thing because you almost don't even need a Bible to tell you that intimacy outside the context of marriage is not a good idea. I mean, you ask, I mean, you know, I've, I've counseled many couples where there's been a violation of the marriage covenant. And, you know, if you ask them, Hey, was having sex outside the context of marriage, did that make your life more complicated or less complicated? Even secular people say, oh yeah, it's more complicated. And yet when the Lord of the creation, who designed marriage, by the way, and the Lord of the new creation sets down these boundaries, we are so quick to disregard him and to do it our own way. Even though we look around the world, it's pretty easy to see that all kinds of marriages and all kinds of relationships are frankly, deeply and disturbingly unhealthy, all because why? We don't accept the Lord of creation and the Lord of the new creation. Jesus Christ is not preeminent in every part of our lives. Nothing should be too big or too hard 
for Jesus Christ to ask you. Because on the one hand, he's Lord of the creation, but on the other hand, he's Lord of the new creation, and he went all the way to the cross for you. How can we not open our lives up and say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. There's one more thing. When you look at Jesus, right, he's Lord of creation, but he also died, okay? It's, it's, it's whiplash, I'm telling you. He's the Lord of the creation. He's before all things. The purpose of creation is in him. The whole universe is held in his hands. Oh, and by the way, he died. He died for you and me. He laid down his life to reconcile you to God, but also ultimately to reconcile the whole universe to God. And if that is the purpose of the new creation, is, and if the purpose of the new creation is supposed to be lived out in the church, we are at ground zero of this new creation work that he has begun, and he ultimately will finish. But we, we can't think of what Jesus did. The Lord of the universe dies on a cross. You have to understand that the pattern that Jesus exhibits for us has to become our pattern if we are to participate in the bringing in of the new creation. The new creation, the Lord of the new creation didn't die so that you would never have to suffer as you partner with God, as he, he allows you to be part of his plan to bring the new creation. It wasn't so that you would never suffer. It's actually so that when we suffer and die and give up things, we then exhibit the power and the pattern of Jesus Christ in the bringing in of this new creation. I sometimes think we forget about that because the two pictures of Jesus are not in our minds. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into his life, his death and resurrection. His story becomes our story. And to participate in the life of Jesus is to participate in the renewal of the world through the power of Christ. Which, how does that come? Through sacrifice and death. First, then the resurrection. I think often of um, uh, Rodney Stark, he's written a number of books that, that, that look at the, the, the sociological sort of growth of the church in the first 300 years of the church. This is the early church. Um, and he writes about the human reasons why the church appeared to have this few thousand people in Jerusalem, you know, about 40, 50, 60 AD. And then in 300 years, it's the dominant faith of the Roman Empire. Here's one of the main reasons. Here's one of the ways that happened. At a human level, we know God is sovereign, of course. There were lots of plagues. They had COVID. Really bad COVID back then, many times. And in those plagues, the elite and the powerful and the wealthy often fled the major cities to go to their houses and places away from the city. They abandoned their post, so to speak. But who was the main group of people who stayed and helped the sick and the dying? It was Christians. And there's all kinds of letters that they have from the ancient world that prove this. It was the Christians who stayed. It was the Christians who nursed people. It was the Christians who then got infected because they were helping these, the victims of the plague. And Christians died in alarming numbers. They certainly did. 
But as Rodney Stark describes, some of those Christians got immunity because some of them lived through that. And so as the population was decimated, as the Christians who lived and got immunity lived and, 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 and were immune from the, 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 the virus, so to speak, there was a higher percentage of Christians than before. And then because everybody who got helped in those major cities saw that it was the Christians, many people flocked to Christianity and trusted him. And in 300 years, the Christian faith is the dominant faith in the Roman Empire. Why? Because those believers followed the Lord of creation and the Lord of the new creation by laying down their lives for others and even death, demonstrating the beauty and glory of Christ in their own actions as they participated and partnered with God in Christ to bring in that new creation through their own death and suffering. That's how it works. One other thing I'll say, in our church with uh, so many people um, here, um, you, I've said this before, uh, when I, I have friends who, who are not part of a church, they're not, they're not Christians, they've come and visited the church, and the number one comment they make to me is, wow, your church is so diverse. They don't say anything about the preaching, which really offends them, offends me. They say, it's so diverse. How do you do it? And I just say, I don't know. We have no plan. People come. But if we're really going to be a multi-ethnic and a healthy multi-ethnic church and a healthy multi-generational church, it requires us to spend time with one another and to do the hard work of getting to know people who are very different than ourselves. It's easy, I'm sure, to go into that atrium. You know, you fight for your bagel from other people, get your bagel. And then you want to talk to the people you know, but if we're going to be healthy, we have to learn to talk to all kinds of people in this diverse congregation. And that takes effort. That takes some sacrifice, I would say. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, day tomorrow. Um, sometimes when I think about Martin Luther King Jr. and I think about um, his appeals to justice and I see the appeals that are made today for justice in a more secular context. I, I, part of me wishes we'd listen to Martin Luther King Jr. more because he roots his quest for justice from the Bible, from the Minor Prophets, mostly. Here's what he said about the challenge of getting to know people that are different from yourself. He said, people fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. I would say one of the sacrifices that we all need to make is we have this multi-generational church where we're old and young and, and everything in between are, are, are growing in fellowship together and we've got people from all over the world. That will not happen unless many of us Make the right sacrifices of time and emotional energy to communicate with one another, to learn from one another, to grow and understand other people, not simply to hang out with the people we already know. Because a new creation does not flourish and does not grow and does not even able to start unless Jesus Christ died and rose again. And because he's asked us to partner with him in that quest, the new creation will not come unless we 
sacrifice, lay down our time, our energy, our emotional life, our spiritual life, sacrifice deeply to see that new creation begin to flourish now here and then by God's grace spread to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to keep these pictures in our minds and help us to make Jesus Christ preeminent in every area of our life. And may you, by your spirit, enable us here at Stonehill to be a place where the new creation flourishes, deepens, grows. Here, yes, and then beyond, not only here in Princeton, but around the world. And Lord, we know it will take sacrifice. It will know it will take laying down our lives in some sense. Help us to make those sacrifices. Commensurate with the sacrifices that you made as Lord of the universe. And now Lord of the new creation. We pray this in your name. Amen.